BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Gormley. We're two girls obsessed with one thing, beauty. beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We're calling on our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. With a drink in hand. Definitely with a drink in hand. <laughs> You're listening to Lipstick on the Rim with Molly Sims. You guys, this is the gut episode. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with our other gut episode, which is on Mother's Instinct. Both are just as important. But today we're bringing back one of our favorite guests, Dr. Will Cole, to talk all things gut. And you're hearing it over social media, in the news, from your friends, from pretty much anywhere you get information. You are hearing the word gut. Will is one of the world's leading functional medicine practitioners and has a new book called Gut Feelings that just came out in March. So you guys, welcome to the gut episode. We can't wait to have you talk all things gut today. Dr. Will Cole, we love you. And the book is amazing. Thank you. I love you guys too. Thanks for having me back. And I realized when you're talking about it like that, how probably abnormal it is to talk about poop, but it is a very normal <laughs> day in the life for, for me, for sure. I think when we first had you on, it was really kind of the start of like, let's start talking about the gut. What is microbiome? And now it truly is more mainstream. We wanted to really also give your book a big shout out because it's between what you eat and how you feel, and it's the relationship about that, which is Will's going to talk a little bit about today, but also takeaways of what you can do and what you shouldn't do. The book is great. It's 21 days, 50 plus recipes to reduce stress and inflammation. Let's start broad, just really quickly. How does the physical impact the emotional and how does the emotional impact the physical? So that's the main point of the book is this bi-directional relationship because it's the book's born out of my day job. It's running the telehealth center here and seeing how mental health isn't separate from physical health. It is physical health and how our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else is. But typically in the West, we'll relegate it to this separate abstract thing where it's like a mental health issue as somehow it's it's different than any other health issue. It is very much physiological. And I talk about the mechanisms that are at play there. There's a whole field of research. It's called the, the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works? So 
in functional medicine, when we're looking at labs, we look at things like inflammation and specifically neuroinflammation and other physiological issues like underlying gut problems or nutrient deficiencies or hormonal imbalances or chronic infections that we deal a lot with, mold toxicity and other types of environmental toxins that can impact our mood. But then a big percentage of our patients are people struggling with different autoimmune issues. So it is a lot of the book is talking about how mental, emotional, spiritual th things, the feeling side of the gut feelings, bi-directional crosstalk, things like chronic stress and unresolved trauma and something that I talk about in the book, I, I call shame inflammation. How does something like shame, these sort of things that we have around our bodies and food and, and life itself because of unresolved trauma, like how that impacts things like inflammation will impact the neuroaminoendocrine axis, which is the intersection between our nervous system, our immune system, i.e. chronic inflammation, and our endocrine system, our hormonal system. So it is very much one and the same, mental health and physical health. And we have to deal with both sides. It has to be a both end approach, not an either or approach when you're talking about mental health and physical health because it really, you have to deal with both the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the psychological to have optimal health. And this is something that I see play out in people's lives every day. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say that stress can cause cancers. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's accurate. Is that an embellishment? You know, is it is it cancers that perhaps start more kind of autoimmune-based? Like, how how extreme can stress translate into illness, I guess, is my question. Mm -hmm. Well, it very much is. And, and we're just scratching the surface in understanding it, right? And understanding things like stress and trauma, chronic stress and trauma, and how it will impact chronic health problems, of which cancer, many cancers are implicated. You look at stress, and I, I cite the studies in the book, at stress is implicated in the top diseases we're faced with as a society. When you're looking mm -hmm. at cancer, heart disease, autoimmune conditions, and of course, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Chronic stress is implicated in all of that. And then, well, what is chronic stress and what are we talking about here? And even just the burgeoning research around unresolved trauma, which is very stressful for the body too, and its implication in autoimmune problems and cancer and heart disease. So yeah, it, it is being researched in the research. And, and I have no doubt in another 10 years, 15 years, we'll know even more the full breadth of what we're faced with when we're not addressing these mental, emotional things. and But it's a lot more to unpack. It's more prescriptive and linear for me to say, these foods have been shown to do X, Y, and Z, have less of those, or like eat these foods, they've been shown to support X, Y, and Z. It's a lot more broad and nebulous to like, to say, well, don't have that stress, don't have that trauma. Right, it doesn't... when someone says don't stress, you're like, okay, I'm yeah. like stressing more because you're telling me not <laughs> exactly. to stress. Exactly. So would you say that there is an opportunity within diet and lifestyle to, I, I guess lessen stress isn't the right way to, to phrase it, but to to help manage, to manage it. How can you correlate what you're eating with stress, right? So like, say like you have a high anxiety job, but like, how do you then say, well, diet can maybe help me or, you know, I, I think the obvious answer is maybe don't drink as much because that can be a depressant. But like, you know, when it comes to food and nutrients, where what's your solution or, or sort of starting mm -hmm. point with that? Well, it, with patients, we typically are correlating this with labs and looking mm -hmm. at what are what's their 
I use this bucket analogy. You know, everybody has different bucket sizes. Some people have big buckets, some people have smaller buckets. That's their own bio-individual ability to handle stressors, both physiological and psychological stressors. Some people spend years of their life, they have bigger buckets, right? They have a high-paced job, lots of stress. They're smoking, they're drinking, they're not eating foods that love them back. And it's going to take a while for them to quote unquote, pay for it. Like it's going to catch up with them sooner or later. There's only something's got to give at that point. And then you have some people that I see, many people that I see tend to have smaller proverbial buckets where they have different methylation gene variants or HLA gene variants or detox variants. And they tend to, they'll be, they'll be the ones that say like, I could never get away with what my friends get away with. And I pay for everything. And you can't change your bucket size. You could change what you put in it. And whether it's physiological or psychological, typically it's both stressors, whether it's foods that don't love us back, alcohol, environmental toxins on the physiological side to unhealthy boundaries with our job and relationships on the psychological side. Both are going to contribute to that bucket overflow. And it's my job or the person's job ultimately to determine what can I empty from my bucket? Like what's Mm -hmm. reasonable, what's realistic, what's sustainable for me to empty from this bucket? And sometimes you have to do that. I've recently had some kind of like reorging in my company and it's like, you got to figure out what makes you happy within mm-hmm. your buckets. And if that's not serving a purpose or serving the the company or serving whatever, then it's, it's, it's got to go. Right. And yeah. those are hard lines that you have to draw. But at the same time, like you, I can't keep stressing about this because this A is not my job and, and B it's, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Mm-hmm to have that. Fact or fiction, we need prebiotics in order to make probiotics work. We don't need, well, here's how I would say it. Probiotics, if we're talking about probiotics, not in the case of supplements, but in the form of all the trillions of bacteria in our gut, our microbiome, of which probiotics support. So yes, the beneficial bacteria of the microbiome or probiotics, if you want to call it that, all the trillions of bacteria there, we need prebiotics in the form mainly of fiber. I mean, fiber from foods that we eat are the prebiotics that feed the bacteria of our gut. And that is home to 75% of the immune system. So even when I talk about inflammation earlier, inflammation is a product of the immune system. This is also where 95% of serotonin, 50% of dopamine is made. It's our second brain. It's two thirds of our immune system. It is where many hormones are converted. 20% of our thyroid hormone is converted here. So yes, bacterial diversity depends on prebiotics or fiber from foods to produce because the bacteria eat what we eat and they like these plant fibers or prebiotics that then ferment the, the, the fibers to produce what are called short chain fatty acids, which are products of bacterial fermentation. Butyrate is the main one. Butyrate is needed for all types of things like our immune system, our brain needs it. It's actually related to beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone that people get when they fast like the benefits of fasting or the ketogenic diet happen because of beta-hydroxybutyrate. Well, our body makes this endogenously in the gut from fermenting fibers, prebiotic fibers in the gut in the form of butyrate, which has similar benefits. So yeah, it's true. Now, what it's not true is you don't, if someone's supplementing with a probiotic, they don't need a probiotic with prebiotics for it to be beneficial. I would just say you want to get the prebiotics, the fiber from foods. 
So would you say get the the prebiotics from food and get the pro take a probiotic, whether it's from food like kimchi? Both can be from foods and both can be from supplements. Food comes first. Like whenever you can get something from food, start there. You know, you cannot supplement your way out of a poor diet. So I would start with prebiotics from food. And then if you want to supplement with like a psyllium husk or an inulin fiber, like those are quote unquote supplements that are from food, but they're in powder form that many people, I take psyllium husk pretty much every day. It's a great additive because if you're not getting enough prebiotics, fiber-rich foods, which sometimes we're living busy lives, we're not getting enough fiber. That's a good supplemental way you could do, add in. And same with probiotics. You could focus on foods first, like the kimchis and the sauerkrauts and the kefirs, and you know, start off low and slow with both the pre and the probiotics, because they're going to shift the way your microbiome is, and more isn't always better. But then from there, supplementation, especially with specific colony-forming units that have exciting research around it, can be beneficial when it comes to probiotics. And what kind of probiotics do you suggest? Do you have a probiotic in your line? We do. Uh, yeah, we do. Will you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I... We really don't do much like quote unquote e-commerce stuff. I mean, you know, my my focus is our, our telehealth patients, but we do have the basic stuff out because people would ask us over the years, hey, I, I don't want a functional medicine doctor. I, it's not something that I can do right now. What are the core essential things that you recommend? Like, what do you see on labs most efficient, most often? And gut health is so ubiquitous, sadly. So a probiotic that has a lot of science around it, with different colony-forming units of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are just the most well-researched forms of beneficial bacteria are, are one of the things I recommend. But ultimately, food is first. But yeah, supplementing with a lactobacillus bifidobacterium can be great. I also love spore-based probiotics as well, which are soil-based organisms. They're from soil, basically. And it's mimicking what we would have got in nature for thousands and thousands of years as humans, but we're so detached from nature that we need to supplement with things that would have just come naturally by working outside. Do you believe that you should take probiotics on an empty stomach in the morning? Is that because I mean, when I buy them, I see that on the label. Is that what you should do? Yeah, that's ge the general advice for the most effectiveness because you don't want it blunted by foods. You want it to be the most, if you're going to spend the money on something like that, you want it to be the most beneficial. And a lot of the research is based around that. Can you explain what a microbiome is for those of us that don't know it or understand it? Sure. So it's, if you break that word down, microbiome, it's the small life. And it is the term for the, the, the collective bacteria, yeast, fungus, even parasites within our gut. So mainly they're talking about the bacterial microbiome. And depending on the study that you talk about or reference, we have upwards of 100 trillion bacteria in our gut. And to put that into per perspective, we have about 30 trillion human cells. So we are exponentially more bacteria than human, hmm. sort of this, this sophisticated wow. host for the microbiome. So this is why it's so important. Now research is just catching up with antiquity that we had, I mean, are all the founders of modern medicine knew this. Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut. Paracelsus, which was known as the, he was known as the father of toxicology in Switzerland in the late, 14, late 1400s, early 1500s. He talked about gut health and all of these people knew what gut health was important. 
If you look at Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, they knew this, but they didn't have the randomized control trials. They just thought anecdotally through observation that the gut influenced something. They just didn't understand it. I would just say we, they didn't understand it is really arrogant of us, really. They did understand it. They just didn't understand it in the way that we kind of glorify today. We hear this term a lot called leaky gut. Will you tell everyone what is leaky gut? It's an unfortunate term, isn't it? Like <laughs> So gross. Who thought of that? I My don't gut know. is like leaking all over the place. What is going on? So it is, it is an unfortunate name, but it is a, just a layman way of saying increased intestinal permeability. So you have these tight junctions in the gut, right? You have, you're talking about the intestinal lining here. And we have tight junctions, which are meant to be semi-permeable to allow things out into the bloodstream and let nutrients in. And you have these proteins that govern the gut lining, which are called zonulin and occludin. Think of zonulin, the Z in that word zonulin, like a zipper. Things are passing through the gut that, that you want to when you have normal zonulin and occludin activity and occludin occludes. And what leaky gut syndrome is, is depending on the type, there's intracellular, intracellular, paracellular, increased intestinal permeability, but it is things passing through the gut that should not be able to pass through the gut or increased permeability. So the main things that are passing through that we don't want passing through are going to be undigested food proteins, which is why you see the amount of food sensitivities and intolerances out there in the world. And then number two are going to be bacterial toxins that are fine when they're in the gut or less problematic when they're in the gut. But these are bacterial endotoxins, on gram negative bacteria, basically, but they're passing through the gut lining. And then your immune system says, what the heck, like undigested food proteins, bacterial toxins are in the blood. They should not be in the blood. And that's where this triggering of inflammation happens or antibodies, which are flags for destruction, then tag the, the bacterial toxins, tag the undigested food proteins, and it triggers an inflammatory cascade, which is the what researchers are looking at for the past 15 plus years. They're looking at this as being a seminal event that happens in the case of autoimmunity. And that's why you see here all your friends and all everybody talking about autoimmune thyroid issues or autoimmune issues or food sensitivities. It's because we've hit a critical point in human history where something's got to give. Like our body is paying a price for this collectively in the form of chronic health problems. And a lot of it has to do with the gut just saying enough, I can't take any more of this, this stress. So what would you say are some of the physical manifestations that you would feel to know that you're having some of these inflammatory reactions? When you're talking about inflammation, it really can impact any system of the body. And I think I'm saying this, the, the disclaimer that I want to say is I don't want to, like we talked about stress and not stressing. Like I don't want to stress, stress about not stressing or, and I don't want people to stress about this stuff either. Like I want to empower people to be, say, okay, look, I know my body. There's so much medical gaslighting around these topics where people know intuitively something's off here. These are things, the big overarching concept is the body's amazingly resilient. You, these are largely overcomable, healable, reversible things that you can do on your own. So this isn't about depending on somebody or taking something or being afraid and this is your lot in life and you're, it's futile. This is about you have to know what you're dealing with to do something about it. So I think that's the big reminder here. 
But to, to empower you, you have to know what you're up against and to do something about it. So when you're talking about inflammation, it is it really can impact any system of the body. I mean, it could be brain fog, fatigue for some people. It could be anxiety, depression for some people. It could be hormonal problems, which are inflammatory because there's dysregulation of communication between hormones. It could be muscle joint inflammation. And of course, digestive problems when you're talking about gut health. The normal bowel movements, like most people, their good check engine light on if their body's telling them something or not is going two to three snakes a day, as we like to say. That's as far as bowel movement, frequent frequency and formation on the Bristol chart. That's normal. If your body's having some of these symptoms, or you're going to the bathroom less or more than that, or the consistency's off, your body's telling you something. Let's just get curious on what the body's trying to tell us. Not to be like weird, but I am so proud when I have a good snake. I'm like, do I want to take a picture of this? It's you true should. though. I'm like, this is this is a moment and you just, you can't share it with anybody because it's gross, but I'm like, this is, yeah. wow. We get this put is, pictures all the does, time. It like a friend patients. of mine, she's like, I haven't gone in like five days. I'm like, something is wrong with you. Like, and she's like, I know it's just because I'm traveling. I'm like, well, then you need, take aloe vera, take psyllium husks. I, to go back to Will's little point on psyllium husks, I learned a long time ago at We Care in Desert Hot Springs, California. Psyllium husks is great. It's like almost like a little bit of a toothbrush um, kind of going in the lining of your intestine. It kind of helps clean it out. It's a really, I forgot about psyllium husk. Fact or fiction, food sensitivities are a hoax. So this is, I, I, this is great that we're busting all these myths today. So the, these terms are typically conflated, allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances. I had somebody on Instagram today said like, our allergies like are the my is my rice potato al allergy is it forever typically people get these labs because there's a lot of direct to consumer labs which i love i think they're great but many people there it needs to be education around the context of the labs right and i'm all for people learning about their health but i think that sometimes this information is conflated so allergies and sensitivities are immune mediated. Intolerances are typically due to an enzyme deficiency, like lactose intolerance is deficient in lactase or FODMAP intolerance, which we see a lot in people that have SIBO. Their body's over consuming because there's not enough enzymes to break down these fermentable sugars. So let's, let's be clear on that. Many people think their allergy tests are real, they're really allergy tests, but they're really sensitivity testing. So the question was, are food sensitivities a hoax, right? They're not a hoax. They are just a snapshot in what the immune system's doing. Hmm. So I, I would, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of food, food sensitivity testing, to be honest with you, because I've seen lots of them over the years. I'm not saying that there's not some good that can come out of them as far as life decisions and like, what the heck do you do with this information? But I find that it's, in most cases, it's less to do with the food and more to do with the immune system's overreaction to that food. I.e., if you see fruits and vegetables and like meats and like random healthy foods that are showing up positive on that food sensitivity test as positive, my goal here for that person would be to work on improving their intestinal lining integrity and the resilience of their gut health, i.e., reversing that leaky gut syndrome, if you want to say it in that way. So your body's not overreacting to those foods. Because if you, I've seen this before, people will retest the test the next week and different foods will come back positive. So it's not to base your breakfast, lunch, and dinner on that snapshot in time because it's not helpful. So it's not a hoax. It's just, 
I don't know how helpful they always are when you're looking on like what you do with this information because then people go and will take out massive amounts of foods based on this snapshot in time without looking at the bigger context of why the immune system was overreacting to that food in the first place. So hopefully that that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. What about, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this, eat right for your blood type. Do you mm-hmm. believe in the blood type yays or nays of what's good for you? There's not a lot of research to show that to be, to really be helpful. And look, I think the differences between these blood types, like one's more plant-based, one's more omnivore, like paleo-ish. If you eat whole foods, it's going to be beneficial for most people. I would say anecdotally, I do hear from people, oh, I find that to be true for me, right? I I do tend to be more plant-based and it, it resonates with them. But I don't know how much of it has to do with their blood type per se. Could that be a component to it? Maybe trends that the doctor who wrote the book could have seen? Possibly. But that's just one variable to see. Like when you have to look at all the other variables of nutrient deficiencies and gut health and all of this stuff, blood type's just one piece of the puzzle. So I don't know of any research to show, large-scale studies to show that doesn't make it not true. It just means science really hasn't shown it per se. I haven't seen it be necessary. I, I do not make food adjustments based on someone's blood type. I always wanted to ask that question because <laughs> I did this like I did question. this blood test and they were like, I'm O negative. And they were like, okay, your protein, which I do crave protein, right? Like I do love a good steak. I like chicken. I like fish. But then they said like, you know, every carb was like, I shouldn't eat. I'm like, well, I'm just going to be protein and vegetables, which is kind of done, which now I'm not. I was going to say real fast is I've seen all different types of blood types. And if someone's iron deficient, they, and you're looking at food as med- medicine and nutrient deficiency, there's their blood type doesn't really matter. We have to get foods that are rich with iron to get that level up. So I think there probably could be some truth to it. I just, I don't find it to be the only variable to look at. So on my last blood test, my iron was like 45. It was low. And that, do you know where your ferritin was? Mm, I can't remember. Ferritin is stored iron. I see that low a lot too, which we want at 80 in functional medicine. That's the optimal zone, at least 80. My we need GP it for said. hormone health, brain health. Yeah. Anyways. So yeah, uh, highest iron foods, like the heme iron bioavailable is, is red meat, like grass-fed beef. Fish has a decent amount of iron too, like things like tuna. I just did my labs actually the other day because I had a stiff neck and I had paranoia. So, you know, just had my doctor run my labs when I took my daughter into the doctor. So anyhow, but I think my iron was low as well. I like this question because I think we all go through phases of trying to like eliminate things. So this is a fact or fiction. It takes six weeks to properly eliminate a food group in the elimination diet. Is that a fact or fiction? Well, no, it, it's it's like a partial fact because I think what they're getting at here is for an elimination diet protocol. And there's many types of elimination diets. Like the, I mean, a paleo diet really could be an elimination diet for some people. AIP for autoimmune could be a, 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 an elimination diet. The whole 30 is elimination diet. The carnivore diet can be used in elimination diet. So there's many types of elimination diets. I would say for most people to start talking about reintroduction of foods should be around the four week mark. Now, 
I, this is my second book was called The Inflammation Spectrum. I talked about this at length where there was a simpler protocol and a more advanced protocol based on a quiz score that I adapted from questions that I asked patients. So people can kind of at least, and I say in the book, like you, eight weeks is really the minimum for some of these more extreme inflammation cases. Like they should give it a few months to calm things down before they bring in more variables. But the reintroduction is just as important as elimination. Because mm -hmm. if you really want to see how your body, what your body loves and what your body doesn't love, then you're going to have to do reintroduction. So yeah. six weeks could be somebody's advice, right? I think it's somewhere in the middle right there, but it doesn't have to be that way. And that's sort of the science and art of this, of like checking in one at a time to mitigate variables as much as possible to see, does this food love me back or not? But four weeks is probably the minimum that most people would say within our space. And it's such a good point, the reintroduction, right? Because you can eliminate it, but great. How do you feel when you reintroduce it is right. almost more important. Yeah, absolutely. Because these are, especially because these are the conversations that we have with patients. Like, what foods do you love? Like, what foods do you miss? What foods do you want to see loves you back or not? Because many people will just stay on this elimination forever. And many people do it because they feel so good that they're almost like afraid to bring something back, which isn't good either. Like, there has to be, there's a lot, oftentimes, a lot of health-related trauma to how foods people because of this epidemic of autoimmune and gut health problem, that we have to work through the mental, emotional. And that's why I even called the subtitle of gut feelings, like healing the shame-fueled relationship between what you eat and how you feel. Because there can be this sort of unintended orthorexia around foods like this, because there are, food sensitivities are legitimate. And some foods are really causing a lot of problems for people. What are some of those foods? The most common offenders? Well... I would, what I call the inflammatory core four are the most common ones that are going to be gluten containing grains. And look, you can have better versions like a sourdough ferments the gluten to make it more digestible. Like or an ancient grain that has gluten is more digestible. There's, there are better for you versions to that. Number two would be industrial seed oils like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil. Now, the, my opinion on this is that it's probably the overconsumption of them, of these oils in packaged foods and not the oils in and of themselves. But the modern Western diet the, is disproportionately ec in excess of omega-6. So they're just overconsuming omega-6 and underconsuming omega-3s in the form of fish, et cetera. Third would be conventional dairy. And by that, I mean just dairy that you're getting in restaurants and grocery stores. You can get grass-fed organic or like A2 dairy that you see cropping up. These are the more of the original OG casein that humans would have consumed. But the fermenting in the form of cheeses and yogurts and kefirs make it more digestible, similar to the sourdough. And then the fourth would be added sugar, which most people know that, but it's even the nice sounding euphemisms for sugar, like agave nectar, like just be mindful of the added amount of added sugar you're consuming in a day. And if I had to add plus one, I think you all know about this, but my, my position on this is would be alcohol only because it's, it doesn't love a lot of people back in higher amounts for sure. We're not going to, I have switched to just tequila. She has I, switched to just tequila. I don't, I can't drink wine anymore. I don't drink a lot of it. I do love a flowers Pinot. I'm not going to lie. Factor fiction, which is what you just talked about. Junk food alternatives like halo top ice cream are better for you than eating the real thing. So people think like, oh my God, it's vegan. I want you to answer that for our listeners. I would read the label because there's the amazing marketing terms that make things look better than they actually are. 
And I'm a sucker for a good branding too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I want it to look good too. But look at the back of the label, not the front of the label. Really read the ingredients. I will say this. The modern Westerner is consuming too much added sugar. So I'm not saying that these sugar alcohols that are in a lot of these lower carb products are the best. But if you're looking at, if I had to pick, I'm just talking about me personally and for my average patient out there, if you're looking at something that's sweetened with stevia or stevia, a xylitol like that, or a monk fruit, these are low carb, quote unquote, natural sweeteners. I would much rather my patient or me or my kids or my wife to consume that over the at refined sugar. When you look at the amount of metabolic issues and insulin resistance issues that these things feed. Does that make the sugar alcohols and low carb sweeteners that you should have copious amounts of them? No, but they are to me a better alternative. So Halo Top, if you're talking about that, and this is not, I have no connection to Halo Top. I have no connection to Halo as well. Yeah, I don't, whatever, something like that. Read the labels because there are ones that will use like these sucralose. I wouldn't go for anything in sucralose in my opinion, but the stevia, stevia, at monk fruit and xylitol, to me, if you're sweetening with that, those are better options than the refined processed sugar. Okay, let's get into your book. It's called Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. And can you talk about, how do you say it, shame-flammation, shame-flammation. It's okay, really, I made up the word, really Molly, great. so it's like you don't <laughs> I love know that how you to made pronounce this up. it. Shame-flammation. <laughs> Shameflammation is a made up word. It's completely like, and it is just my commentary on the research in the scientific literature, looking at the mind body connection. Like how does something like shame and things that cause shame, like shame about our bodies or shame around food or shame around chronic stress or unresolved trauma or a combination of those things, how does that impact our biochemistry? So there's many studies that I talk about in the book. One of them is a a research study looking at self-compassion. And which is the antidote to shame inflammation. And the people that had the, they were doing a, in the study, they were doing a lot of stressful activities like math and public speaking. And they measured inflammation, interleukin six, in these people. The people that practiced the most self compassion, which I teach how to do about t- different practices of self compassion in the book, had the lowest inflammation levels, the lowest IL-6 levels. Mm. So this is just showing us that wellness is not just about what we feed our bodies with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What are we feeding our head? What are we feeding our heart on a daily basis with these things that are more nebulous, they're a lot more abstract, they can seem kind of woo-woo, but they're not woo-woo. This is very much our thoughts and what we're ruminating on will impact our biochemistry. Our body is a cellular library and our food impacts cellular function, but also these metaphysical meals that I talk about. Like what are we, what are thoughts, words, emotions, experiences will also impact our biochemistry. I'm a pretty big sleeper. As you know, I can pretty much sleep anywhere, anytime, but lately I've become so tired and I think it's, it's, I'm mentally tired. I'm mentally ruminating or stressing or thinking or Again, we just launched a company in the past few months, so that is an added stress. But, you know, we had a tough year, Emisha and I, and I have to say, like, sometimes I just feel mentally drained just from my own head. Yeah, I mean, it's true, but it's not beating yourself up, I guess, through that, because like we said earlier, like it's then it's I'm not adding up. 
I have to do one more thing. It's sometimes it's not about doing one more thing. It is just taking inventory, like we said earlier, about healthy boundaries with our life. And sometimes it's doing less, really. And it's just not beating yourself up for doing for not doing all the things. With what we've gone through in the last year, it's very easy to get very stressed out, very upset, very angry. And I would say the one thing that has helped me, and when I do it, I don't I don't have the wherewithal to do it every day, but when I do it, every morning that I do it, I'm very I find my mood and my day shifts is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I have that moment, whether it's after I've dropped the kids off at school or I'm driving in the car by myself and I just check off like a few things that I'm grateful for that day, that mental check-in allows me to reset my day and it makes me less angry. Maybe I don't honk at the person that cut me off, you know, as I was driving or I, I, I can't explain it, but it does create a shift in my day that day. Yeah, it is. It's gratitude has a lot of really exciting science around it. And it's a great way to shift that neuroimmunoendocrine axis that we talked about. It is literally shifting your biochemistry to be in gratitude, to hold this space of these. I I call the metaphysical meals in the book because it literally, I want people to treat it like mealtime. Like how are we bringing in a mealtime of gratitude every day, of self-compassion every day? That's important. I think we can all find something. I mean, you could have the absolute shittiest day on earth And you can still find something to be grateful for because, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you have a roof over your head, God willing. You know what I mean? You you can find one thing to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you can focus on that, it helps you. It takes that edge off. It takes that anger away, which to your point, feeds stress, creates that imbalance and can create a whole host of other issues. I mean, it, it is really fascinating to me. Well, one feeds and, another thing. It's like feeling guilty mm-hmm. about something that feeds mm-hmm. something where, as we all know, guilt doesn't it even... It spirals. It spirals. It doesn't even really exist. How does blood sugar imbalance and affect the gut? We want to talk a little bit about sugar cravings, how many days you go without sugars to kick the craving. Is there anything that you could give our listeners advice on helping curve that blood sugar? That's how... I mean, I don't... I actually don't eat a lot of sweets the, really, my sugar comes from alcohol. Don't you think, Amisha? Yeah, huge. you're not a big... You and I are both the same. I'm not I'm not a huge... I used to like sweets. I'll have a tiny bit of I'll dark bite, chocolate yeah. at night. That's it. Tiny. Mm-hmm. Or I'll have a bite of my kid's cupcake. Like, or it's like, I'll have like a... Like, I'm not... I have a little bit of control on that. Like, much mm-hmm. more over something salty. Like, I love a fry or a cracker or like, I mm-hmm. love like nine loaves of bread. You know what I mean? Like, I'm from the mm-hmm. South. Yeah. And and look, I think those break down into sugar. So you are getting it in more in different ways, but grains, carbs, quote unquote, break down into sugar. And then there's like the added sugar, right? So I I would look at, I think this is triggering for some people and it's not relevant from some people, but I think looking at your own bio-individual biomarkers and bio-individual biochemistry, something that we do with patients beyond looking at labs for a few weeks, three, four weeks, nothing long, wearing a continuous glucose monitor and seeing how glucose impacts you on a bio-individual basis. So it stresses some people out. It's not for everybody, but I think it'd be interesting. It's interesting for a lot of people, a learning awareness tool for people to see how food, but not just food, how does stress impact your blood sugar? How does sleep impact your blood sugar or a lack of it? Because all those things are things you can make decisions on. So 
that's a, a thought there. But you, the microbiome and your blood sugar, it's bidirectional. Certain bacterial overgrowths that we talked about earlier, these like weeds that can overgrow in the gut garden are associated with insulin resistance and also increased cravings. And the, the cliched one is like a yeast and fungal overgrowth, like candida overgrowth, increasing cravings. It, that's true, but so can bacterial overgrowth as well, because actually crosstalks with your brain and causes you to crave certain things because we co-evolved with these things and they want to survive. And certain bacterial colonies really like sugar more than other ones. And they really can shift the foods that you crave. And it's not actually you that's craving it. It's the bacteria in your gut that's influencing you to go for that food, that to feed it. So it can be difficult, therefore, to, to go off of sugar because then that those cravings increase because the microbiome brain, microbiome mood crosstalk is happening. So it's not normal, but it's common to go through these things because gut problems and bacterial overgrowth and yeast and fungal overgrowth are ubiquitous. But you have to give it some time. If you're trying to decrease the amount of sugar, you have to, like my pro tips here would be to not decrease calories. Sometimes people, when they're trying a new way of eating and they'll think they're doing the good thing, they will cut carbs and cut sugar, but then there's nothing to fill in that deficit. And then they're hypocaloric, which is increasing cravings even more. Like don't decrease calories, eat until satiety, but just shift where you're fueling your body, increase fiber rich foods which may have some carbohydrates, fiber and by its very definition. Fi- give carbs. us some fiber-rich foods that you love. Well, any really any fruit or vegetable. I, I feel like fruits, even if it has fructose, right? I would much rather have someone have a fiber-rich fruit, a whole fruit, any fruit you can think of, any vegetable you can think of, because the fiber will blunt the glucose spike. And fi- sugar, in the when it's fiber-rich, will impact the way the glucose is expressed. So if you're having like the refined carby food or the alcohol that's with sugar or the juice or the soda, or whatever, it's going to behave differently than someone has a fiber rich food. So really any fruits or vegetable will, will do. You could get granular and like measure the amount of grams of you know fiber you're consuming with like a chronometer or my fitness pal or something. I do feel like education around nutrition is important because we aren't really informed about this stuff. You don't have to keep doing it, but just know how you're fueling your body would be a good thing. But yes, so, but then also fill it with protein. Protein is one of the most blood sugar stabilizing, satiety increasing macronutrients along with healthy fats. Factor fiction, fats are the secret source of energy. They are one of them, yeah. I mean, all macronutrients are important. Like whole food carbohydrates with fiber is great for energy. It's like kindling on the fire. But protein and fats are the most important. Like there are essential fatty acids that you need to get it, get from food. There are essential amino acids or proteins that you need to get from food. There's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, meaning your body will make it through gluconeogenesis, even in the absence of, of carbohydrates. But you need proteins and you need fats. Those are really important. So the quality of the fat, the quality of the protein matters, which is why I put all the recipes in the book so people can like learn, okay, what does this actually look like? What does is, what is a day in the life look like with this stuff? I love that, though, because people want the tips. They want the pro okay. tips. They want the takeaways. They want to know what, like, I'm like, well, exactly tell me what to do and when to do it. And what to eat. I, I, I like eat. this factor fiction because I actually did this for some time recently. Drinking apple cider vinegar helps with weight loss. 
I was drinking two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar every morning in a LaCroix. Sounds fun to me. But no, it was uh, actually delicious. It basically tasted like my own kombucha, kombucha, yeah, whatever I was. It is, yeah, it, that's what it similar. tastes like. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you want to get the apple cider vinegar ACV with the mother is what they call it, but it's like the sediment. Bragg's is the most famous brand, but there are other yeah. brands out there. Yeah. So aid in weight loss, there are some studies to show it supports gut health, which can and therefore import and uh, support a healthy metabolism. I don't, I wouldn't see it as like a weight loss tool is the main reason to do that, but supporting your gut health is a, in turn good for your metabolism, your brain, your immune system, digestion, all the things. So I think that's the in for some brands when they're talking about this or the in mm -hmm. for, you know, some people like, oh, it's, it's, it's good for my, which that, if that motivates you, then go for it. But one thing to be mindful about ACV is not having it straight up like on drinking because it can burn your esophagus. I love the Bragg's amino acids. You'll, I do it with a little bit of olive oil on a skillet with vegetables. I'll do like a coconut rice or a cauliflower rice. Which is better, brown rice or white rice? From a fiber standpoint, the brown rice. Yeah. From a food sensitivity standpoint, white rice. And mm -hmm. that's where you talk about bio-individuality. If you're looking to increase fiber, you want to go for the brown rice. But many people have the, it, the, the proteins in the white rice are higher in the brown rice, which some people that have grain sensitivities can react to. Even though it's a gluten-free grain, this can still be problematic for some people. Whereas the white rice, for people with autoimmunity, it's more of like a just the carb side of it, but it's easier to di be digested by those people that have digestive problems. You have a great recipe for simple bone broth. I mean, you have great recipes in your chicken hash with squash and kale, chicken artichokes, asparagus, mushrooms, lime vinaigrette with a barbecue salmon, chipotle salad. Oh, you're making me hungry, guys. You talked about LaCroix a few minutes ago, Emisha. Are carbonated drinks bad for the gut? No, no. They can cause like burping, obviously. I wouldn't say that's bad, right? When it comes to psychedelics and aptogens, are there any that really help the gut and inflammation that you would suggest taking or trying? Well, psychedelics, no, but adaptogens, yes. The, the overlap is this. Mushrooms, there are psychedelic mushrooms, and then there's medicinal mushrooms that have adaptogenic properties. Psychedelics, I would want you to go to a doctor that's trained in this. Many psychedelics aren't even legally illegal te technically at this point. Things are changing and will change. But you have to go to a, a psychiatrist that's trained in this. And there are different researchers, like MAPS would be a good resource. Like go to Ma look at MAPS, which is an acronym, M-A-P-S, that does psychedelic research in a medical setting where they're looking at things like psilocybin, for example, which is the psychedelic mushroom. Adaptogenic mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, turkey tail, I love those. I think that they're great tools for people. They're non-hallucinogenic, non but they have great neuroprotective benefits, immune benefits, anti-cancer benefits, anti-inflammatory benefits, gut health benefits. So yeah, I think that, that those are the ones that I would point people to on a regular day-to-day -day basis. We have to do a rapid fire because we have to, I don't even know, we have to do like a part three because you're just so, I, I have like 54 more questions to ask you. <laughs> what is your Will Cole favorite food? All, all time, I would say first thing that comes to mind is peanut butter. My kids, is this bad? My kids eat so much peanut butter. I eat too much peanut butter. Is it bad for you? It's not the best thing in the world. Like 
it, but it's not the worst thing either. To me, it it loves me back. I don't. I feel fine having it. I, I, I eat a god awful amount of it, so I, <laughs> I'm I would, and I'm very honest about this, but I do. But I'm getting the organic yeah. Valencia peanut butter from like Trader Joe's. It's which Valencia peanuts tend to have the lowest amount of mold. Peanuts tend to have higher amount of aflatoxins, which is a mold that I see high on labs a lot. So you don't want to just go for any old peanut butter. And look at the added oils and sugars in them. But just like a plain peanut butter is is relatively okay. So you're not buying Skippy? I'm not buying Skippy. Yeah, no. It's the stuff you have to churn and it's a pain in the butt. But You have two kids. Uh, what are some of your favorite go-to snacks for them? Well, let's think about this. My daughter, she loves this grass-fed yogurt that we get at the store at Whole Foods. You can really get anywhere. I don't know the brand, but just I would say look at for plain yogurt, grass-fed yogurt. They have sheep yogurt, goat yogurt too, that you can add your own sweetener to. You could add like a little bit of honey, a little bit of maple syrup, or put some fruit in it and stir it up. She loves that stuff. So she, that's a great thing for her. She's a little bit more, I would call her omnicurious in the way that she doesn't love meat. So to get a like a complete protein and healthy fats in the form of yogurt that's fermented, I'll take it for her. And my son could be a carnivore and he loves like the, the, the chomps bars, I love like those. the epic bars. So those are nice snacks for him. What's the favorite thing about your job? I love figuring out solutions to complex problems. I, it's like a puzzle for me. And I just love it. I, I'm, do you guys know anything about the Enneagram? No, it's like a personality. I'm, I'm curious to know what you guys, your, your Enneagram is, but it's like a way that you see the world and operate. And I'm an Enneagram five, which is like a researcher. So it serves me well with my job. What's your superpower, Wilkel? I would say I'm a good listener. I would say that's a superpower in this world today. What's your next book going to be about? That's a good question. I don't have anyone planned. I really don't. My goal this year is like, okay, the book's out. I'm focusing fully on the telehealth center, getting like operations, logistics optimized. I love that kind of stuff. So it's that and, and patient care. So I, there's no book at this point planned. What's your biggest indulgence? You've got to have some. Well, I would say it's peanut butter. Can we go <laughs> back to that? And you don't drink at all, right? I don't. I mean, to say never. I mean, I, I have it in my life. You're happiest when, well. I mean, having the book come out. I mean, this is like books are a long time coming from a writing and editing and crafting all that stuff. So to have it come out is like a recently professionally was a, is a great win. And also I'm like going to be so country right now, but I live in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. It's not rained here for like a month and we're on a spring. And when you are not attached to city water and it doesn't rain, you appreciate the rain. So on a personal level, I'm such a farmer. It rained. And I'm like really excited for my yard and my well. The last time you were on, you answered this question. If you could give advice to your 10-year-old self, what would it be? And you said, don't be anxious for nothing. I look back at my life and I was always taken care of. Things always worked out. Not the way I thought it would work out, but I wish I worried less. And I still am telling myself that. Any other advice you would like to? Wow, I was so poignant. I don't remember. You were very saying. poignant. And that's why we brought it back up because I love that. I would say that's definitely still the case for me. I, I still feel that way. So the question is best advice I'd tell my 10-year-old self? Mm -hmm. Or just I, really you know what, it, what I would say here? My son is 16, so he's not 10. 
but we were sitting on the porch last night and he was so stressed out about his all the things he had ahead of him like about the girl the girlfriend and the work front and what's he going to do with his life and i think i thought of myself at that age of like needing to have it all figured out and you felt like you're just so much older than you actually were so i think my advice is exactly what i told him is just like trust the process just observe your life and the blooming of your life with curiosity and gratitude and all these things we're talking about in today's conversation because it's all going to be okay and, and not to like fret about it. So it's kind of the same thing, but in a different way, because I'm seeing it through the eyes of my son now, mm-hmm. figuring all this, this life stuff out. And people just need to give themselves more grace no matter what age they're at, because people are hard on themselves. And, and that's what I tried to talk about in the book is just kind of hopefully infusing some grace and lightness into life into wellness, because oftentimes there's a lot of shame, a lot of fear, a lot of dread around these topics. You guys can follow Will at Dr. Will Cole, and he has a hugely popular podcast called The Art of Being Well. You're amazing. His book came out a few months ago, Gut Feelings. Make sure and get it. 21 Days, 50 Plus Recipes to Reduce Stress and Inflammation. And if anyone could get to you, you have an incredible, like you said, a telehealth yeah. Uh, functional medicine company business program that is amazing. Well, we love you and we're going to have you Our back. Favorite. Our favorite. It is, you guys make sure and take care of your gut mentally and physically because it and is. And trust it. And trust it. It's, it's on a, all levels. On all levels. We love you, Dr. Cole. Thank you guys. Love all you right. too. Thank well, you. Guys, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Lipstick on the Rim with Molly Sims and my ride or die, Emisha Gormley. We are always so excited to bring you guys along on this journey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at Lipstick on the Rim or my website where we just dive a little bit deeper into my favorite products, trends, and much, much more on mollysims.com. This podcast is a production with Dear Media. A special thanks to my team, Elizabeth Tawfield, Schaefer Carrillo, Ken Ryan, and Anna Sessions and everyone at Dear Media. Don't forget to listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on the fun. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.